mindset certainly was challenged by this whole pandemic. And at the very least, there was a thought process that was engaged with by the majority of people. And even if they didn't change their behavior, they certainly were confronted with some new ideas. I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological, the podcast that curates East Asian medicine and methods through the power of conversation. When we graduate, we are set off in leaky boats. Not broken boats, leaky boats. Pretty much everything you learned in school was not wrong. It was just incomplete. All the stories you believe, not wrong, but not filled out. Regardless if from your teacher's blind spots, misunderstandings, or ignorance, or if from your lack of understanding, misconception, or willful insistence that they were wrong, your understanding is incomplete. It's impossible when setting out not to have holes in your conceptions, chinks in the way the seams of knowledge come together so that with strain, pressure, and a couple of good storms, they wear apart instead of seating tightly together. We start off with a certain amount of experience to ballast our encounters with patients. We have a structure built out of skill and study, but the open waters of clinic and patient encounters will show us where we're mistaken, where there are holes in our understanding and where our blind spots keep us circling around some thorny issue. It's not that a leaky boat isn't seaworthy. It can be, but you have to know how to make repairs along the way. And then there is the time required to get to know the boat, the sweet spot of how the ship sails, where she's fast, and which kind of waters are like a second language, and which point of sail is a struggle. It takes time for a boat to season itself and time for the sailor to learn the boat. Often, the ship is solid enough, but the helmsman still green. It takes time to learn the boat, the waters, and the ever-changing patterns of water and wind. When starting off with a practice, for sure, we don't have everything that we need. What's more? We're headed for uncharted waters. Practice, like any voyage of discovery, is something created as the journey unfolds. It's not helpful to wish for an easy passage, but rather for the strength, ingenuity, and persistence to overcome what arises. Getting our footing at the beginning of any enterprise is challenging, even in the best of times. The past three years of pandemic and all that it's wrought, the difficulties of learning in a virtual environment where you can't use your hands to learn a hands-on medicine, the problems that arise with not being able to be in the same room with patients when so much of our medicine leans heavily on presence and connection in the moment. And then there was the way that our medicine was pushed to the sidelines by the demands of conformity to convention. All this in the daily red-lined levels of uncertainty has made the past three years a rough go. At the same time, 
It's been an opportunity to rise to the challenges of the moment, to take written observations and methods of the past and see how they might unfold with benefit to our patients and our practices here in the present. Now that the coronavirus is no longer novel and the vast majority of us have either been vaccinated, infected and recovered, or quite often both, we now have a level of herd immunity that allows us to co-evolve with SARS-CoV-2 as we do with other previously deadly pathogens that are now part of the seasonal mix of illness. But this doesn't mean that our work is done. And especially when it comes to long COVID, there is a lot that acupuncture and herbal medicine has to offer. That is the foundation of this conversation with Nigel Dawes. Nigel and I had a discussion about a year ago. That's episode uh, number 188. And in this conversation, we continue to look at COVID past and present and how we can be helpful to our patients and to our communities. That's coming up right after Shop Talk, the clinical nuts and bolts portion of the digital campfire here. Shop Talk is all practical material on treating patients using acupuncture or herbs, along with a smattering of the how-to of running that fantastic machine for social good and change, your practice. But first, a word from the folks who make it possible for you to enjoy Geological. These conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Worried that an EMR is too complex for you? Jane has friendly and knowledgeable support. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Are you concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, Ancestral Sturman offers up a sinew treatment, and the folks at Blue Poppy have something special to share as well. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. I don't know about you, but sometimes I take a step back and marvel at my acupuncture needles. I mean, they're the world's simplest medical tool, a sharpened wire and a handle. That's it. And with this simple tool, hundreds of health conditions can be resolved. I love it. What I didn't love was the amount of packaging waste I generated at the end of the day. But that has now changed too. Ever since I switched to AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles, I reduced my packaging waste by 90%. Not only are they a great needle, but the folks at AccuFast plant a tree for every two boxes of needles I use in the clinic. By switching to AccuFast Needles, you'll be helping patients, planting trees, and joining a community of practitioners changing the world. Like our simple needle, being a part of this solution, it's simple too. Visit AccuFastNeedles.com slash Geological to learn how. Hi folks, I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. 
Please visit Mayway.com to find the perfect Pumsar brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies. As we welcome the month of May, our focus is on women's health. Our newsletter articles and podcast episodes this month will highlight different aspects and unique challenges women face. So subscribe or tune in. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our women's health formulas this month. Just visit Mayway.com. This season and every season, trust Mayway Herbs for your health and wellness needs. And thank you for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. I love how technology can help to automate my office. And I want to share with you my favorite tool for doing so, Jane. Jane is a clinic management software in EMR with a human touch. Whether you're switching your software or going paperless for the first time, the Jane team knows that the onboarding process can feel a little overwhelming. That's why with Jane, you don't just get software, you get a whole team. Included in every Jane subscription is their award-winning customer support available by phone, email, and chat whenever you need it, even Saturdays. You can also book a free account setup consultation to review your account and ensure you feel confident about going live. If you're interested in making the switch to Jane, head to jane.app/switch to book a one-on-one demo with a member of their support team. And be sure to mention the code Geological at the time of sign up for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. Welcome to Shop Talk. In this portion of the podcast, we are bringing you roughly 15 minutes of practical clinical methods, perspectives, and advice that has its work boots on. This section is all about practical material that you can begin to investigate the next time that you walk into clinic. Additionally, visit the show notes page for supporting materials from this week's guest on Shop Talk. All right, roll up your sleeves. Let's get to work. Hi, my name is Damo Mitchell, um, and today in Shop Talk, I'll be talking about the craft of acupuncture or how I see it. I mean, I was taught acupuncture in various ways, including um, at a university in the UK, but then also apprenticed to several teachers in Asia and the West as, as well. So I've had different kinds of training. Um, and one thing that I very much uh, had passed down to me uh, by the people that I apprenticed to and learned in this fashion was that acupuncture is a craft. It's something that must be developed over a long period of time and it involves a specific skill set. And one of those skill sets that I think is really important is the use of the needle, the acupuncture needle. So obviously in acupuncture, everybody knows we're inserting these fine sterile needles into the <laughs> into the patient's body but to me they have to be done like the actual act of inserting the needles is a practice is something we must develop is a form of gong fu so one piece of advice that i'm always uh, giving to people when i first start to talk to them about chinese medicine or they ask my opinion on how to practice and one thing i always dare i say enforce <laughs> on the people that i directly 
teach acupuncture to is that you must get rid of those guide tubes so they gotta go i don't like them <laughs> i didn't like them at all i know that some people really like this idea of you put in the plastic tube on the body and then just tap in the needle but where's the craft you know like where's the the skill of the needle insertion where is the the beauty and the connection that you have with the patient that you just don't get in the same way as if you're practicing needle insertion um just freely from your hand into the body I look at it this way, you know, like there's a, a way of understanding the channel system. So as all of you know, you're all Chinese medicine practitioners, I'm sure the channels have different aspects to them. One of the aspects of the channel system being the Jin Jin or the sinew channels. Okay, so these lines of connective tissue that run not identical, but in similar pathways um, to the primary channels, right? So in, when we look at the depths of the channels, usually we talk about the sinew channels being more superficial and the primary channels being comparatively deeper. But in actual fact, I mean, that's a model, isn't it? That's a model for us to understand the channel aspects of the body, but really they're kind of intertwined. So the way that I view the sinew channels is they're like a riverbed through which the primary channel flows, if you like. So the primary channel to me is kind of encapsulated in these sinews, in these connective tissues that run through it. One way that um, one of my previous teachers would talk about them, and okay, <laughs> he stole this, borrowed, whatever you want to say. Um, he, he borrowed this analogy from Chinese martial arts because he was also a martial arts practitioner. And he would say that the sinew channels are like a drum skin that is pulled tight. And then the vibration of the drum skin is like the primary channel conducting its way along this sort of elastic connectivity. So... If I wish to treat somebody and I wish to insert a needle, then basically I can access, if I've got skill, I can access these different layers of the body. So if I'm treating um, something on the level of the sinew channels, I can insert the needle into the body and touch the sinew channels. And to be honest, that's a lot easier than touching the primary channel. To actually insert the needle through, let's be honest, through the sinew channel without affecting it to then hit the primary channel is what takes a little bit of skill and this really is where the craft of acupuncture comes in as far as I can see because the body the human body and the way that it works on the level of channels is very um, sort of limited with regards to the instructions it can take so basically when I insert the needle if I hit the primary channel and I disturb it to a large degree you know which if you're inserting a needle into the primary channel, you will disturb it to a large degree. You know, you're inserting a sharp object into the body. When I insert it into the body, if I disturb the primary channel, a uh, sinew channel, I apologize, then the treatment will work on the level of the sinew channel. So amazing for musculoskeletal or perhaps pathogens trapped on the surface or, or things like this, you know, okay. But my treatment is affecting the sinew channel. What will happen is the primary channel is affected secondary as a byproduct of the sinew channel. So you could kind of put it like this, like both channels, aspects of the channel be affected at the same time. But if I hit the sinew channel, it's maybe 70% sinews and 30% primary. You know, it's like the 30% primary channel is just influenced as a byproduct of the sinew channel. What this means is that all of these sort of individual functions of the acupuncture on the meridian points, whatever you want to call them, all of those individual functions will be lessened. So, for example, if I'm inserting the needle into a point that descends chi or clears heat from the body or maybe transforms damp, whatever it is, those, those aspects, those functions attached to the point, if I'm hitting the sinew channel level of that region of the body, you're only using that point function to 30% of its maximum potential. Um, 
maybe that was complex. Let me explain this. So say I'm going to insert the needle. I've got a point here and I want to clear heat from the body. And at that point very specifically tells me when you put a needle in here, you're going to clear heat from the body. And that's what I want to do. Now, if I put the needle in and I hit the sinew channel on the way down, then actually the body has received the instruction, oh, there is something happening on the level of sinews. So therefore, this is a sinew tissue treatment, musculoskeletal, whatever. Then what happens is because I've already hit the sinew channel and sent that instruction to the body, the actual function of that point, that acupuncture point is lessened. So it's only about 30% effective because 70% of the treatment is on the level of the sinew channel. Now, obviously, these are just percentages <laughs> I'm using as a concept. They're not too exact, but I, hopefully you get what I mean. Whereas on the other side of the, the scale, if I can insert the needle beyond the sinew channel without disturbing it to hit the primary channel and hit the primary point on that channel, then what I get is a much stronger clearing of heat. Now I'm clearing the heat to about 70% of its effectiveness, if you like, and 30% of the byproduct is the sinew channel is hit. It's like a set of scales. And now I've managed to go through to the primary channel. I'm tipping the scales in the favor of the primary point. And this is where the craft of the needle comes in. Like how good are you at inserting the needle beyond the sinew channel to hit the primary point? Now for a start, the primary channel is very thin. It's not a very thick thing. The sinew channels are thick, but the primary channel is thin. So when I'm inserting the needle into that primary channel, I also have to get the depth correct. I mustn't go too superficial because I miss the, the channel, and I mustn't go too deep because I miss the primary channel as well. I've got to be right in it. So the tip of the needle that I'm inserting goes right into the center of the primary channel that at some points on that primary channel is only like a two millimeters thick or one millimeter. It's like very, very fine. So I must be able to feel back through the needle into me when I touch that primary channel. Okay, I must know it. And that means I need contact with the needle. I'm not going to feel that if I'm, my contact with the needle is just the tip of my finger tapping the head of the needle into, through the tube into the body. Now, of course, people might argue and say, well, once I insert that needle through the guide tube, tap, in it goes. Now I can take the tube off and then I can adjust the needle. And okay. Arguably, that's true. You can reach the primary channel, but through tapping the needle, you've already affected, most likely, the sinew channel. Because think of it like this. Think of the sinew channel and all of the tissue spreading out as like a cobweb with a spider sat at the center of it. And you know what happens when something flies into a cobweb? Bong, that fly hits the web and it sends a vibration along the web to the spider and the spider knows something's landed in its web. It feels it and it runs along and eats the the fly, the sinew channels are very similar. So when I take that needle and I just bang, I just tap it, you know, send that vibration through the, through the tube, through the needle into the, the sinew channels. Once I do that, then really that's the equivalent of the fly landing in the web and sending a vibration along the length of the cobweb. And what will happen is now the body knows, okay, oh, this is a sinew channel treatment. So by using the guide tube and tapping it, that vibration is already accessed the sinew channel. So it means really that guide tubes in that way, if tapped and inserted in, can only really be used primarily for musculoskeletal things as much as anything, or maybe clearing something from the surface of the body or whatever you're using the sinew channel treatments for. So I wish to do away with the guide tube and then hold in the needle, insert it ever so finely and exactly, and, and 
with such precision that I can slide it, if you like, between the fibers of the sinew channel without disturbing it. It's the equivalent of the fly managed to fly between the fibers of the spider's cobweb. You know, I want that needle to be inserted through the sinew channel without hitting it, so I do not disturb it. The body doesn't even know that the sinew channels are being affected. It doesn't know the needles are being inserted on the level of the physical body because my skill, hopefully, you know, everyone makes mistakes, <laughs> but hopefully my skill is such that I can insert the needle beyond the sinew channels to hit the primary channel. And when I hit the primary channel, boom, I get that biggest function that I want. I get the heat release, I get the fluids transformed or moved or, or whatever it is that point may be doing. It's very akin to that story from the Zhuangzi that I'm sure if any of you have read Chinese classics you're familiar with, and that's the story of Butcher Ding, right? So if you don't know who Butcher Ding was, if I <laughs> badly paraphrase the story, dare I say butcher it, excuse the pun, then Butcher Ding essentially is um, a butcher and he has a knife and the the short version of the story is that essentially someone is amazed because every time he's cutting and cutting and cutting, he's cutting all the meat, he's cutting the pork, he's cutting the beef, his knife never blunts, it never goes blunt, it always stays sharp. And when asked about how, Butcher Ding, why does your knife never go sharp? He essentially says that his skill is at such a level that when he slides the knife into the meat that he's butchering, it never touches the meat. He's so specific that the meat parts out of the way as the knife slides through. Hence, there's never any clash with the meat, so the knife never blunts. This is a perfect analogy for me for what I want with the needle. Not that I don't want the needle to go blunt, you know, I'm not planning on reusing them anyway, but more to the point that when my needle slides through the meat, the flesh, the sinew channel, I don't want it to touch it. I want to be so precise with my needle. I want the chi so strong and filling the needle and the muscular control, the little fine motor muscles of my hands so controlled, inserting this needle in a way that I've done a hundred times, a thousand times, 10,000 times, a million times, maybe not, I don't know, maybe not that much. And I'm inserting it in to such a level that the sinew channel almost parts out of the way. It's like Butcher Ding's knife sliding into the meat. Through it goes and into the primary channel to get the maximum effect that I want. Conversely, because of the craft I have with the needle, if I do want to affect the sinew channel, I can be a bit rougher, you know, and, and, and my needle manipulation will depend upon this as well. I will manipulate and adjust the needle differently depending on whether I want the sinew channel or a primary channel treatment. I'll be a lot rougher, a lot sort of left and right, side to side to really send that vibration through the fascia, through the connective tissue, through the muscles, whatever it is. I want to send that vibration through to tell the body, look, this is a sinew channel level treatment. Whereas at the same time, if I'm sliding beyond it into the primary channel, I'm more up and down and very fine and very gentle and trying to not disturb any of the tissues, not to cause any physical damage on a tiny minute level, just so I can get that needle into the primary channel. At that stage, if you start to work at that stage, which, you know, is my advice, then even the feedback you get is different. So you will find that when you insert the needle into the sinew channel, essentially what I feel through the needle is I feel the handle. <laughs> That's what I feel. I feel the handle, maybe a little bit of sort of a, a shake or resistance or something of the needle as it goes into the tissues, but not much else. But if I can slide beyond the sinew channel, beyond the physical, into the subtle, into the, the channel, 
um, then all of a sudden that feedback back from that primary channel is more. You can get everything from temperature changes, very subtle, the needle can suddenly heat up or cool down, or sometimes there's an electric buzz that some of you may have felt that comes out of the primary channel into the handle. The yang chi essentially is being stimulated at this stage, and you can feel it back through your body, and all of a sudden the dirty sensation becomes less of a patient experienced effect, and all of a sudden part of a therapist experienced effect. And at this stage, that means that I have a connection with my patient. No longer am I just tap, needle in, walk away, tap, needle in, walk away, tap, needle in, go for a cup of tea for 20 minutes and leave the patient there on the bed. All of a sudden I have like a, a direct feedback and connection with what I'm doing. I'm involved. The very act of using my needle in a craft-like fashion means that I connect with my patient. And okay, now we have a back and forth between the qualities of our chi. Now, some people who are working from a very Western scientific or medical biological perspective, whatever you want to call it, I call it materialist perspective. This will sound strange because perhaps to you guys, there is only the sinews and then maybe some nerve bundles underneath or something like that. But I would argue that you're missing a whole ton. That whole frog in a whale syndrome of that which I have seen and touched and tasted and whatever is the only thing that's real. There's no bigger picture to Chinese medicine out there. It's outdated, it's dying out. And increasingly, being involved in the Chinese medicine world and talking to people, it's really funny because I tend to find that a lot of the, I can only talk about the experience I've had, I, uh, and I'm more familiar with Europe, but I know that in, in America, maybe it's a little different, but certainly the educational facilities I've had contact with, or that I've met students who and spoken to about their education is very much, it feels often like the teacher or the way that the education is structured is very sort of scientific research based. And I've heard many stories of teachers saying to the students on day one or maybe day two, just to settle them in, chi isn't real and there's nothing energetic and it's a metaphor and an old and outdated idea and the way forward is scientific acupuncture. And actually, I don't find that that view from the, the loudest voices doing the education actually matches the viewpoints of many of the students or many of the people studying Chinese medicine. Many of the people coming to acupuncture are really interested in the esoteric side of it, in the subtle body. They often have backgrounds in Qigong and yoga and meditation and religion and all these kind of things. And they, they're massively fascinated by the subtle more um, internal aspect of the training, dare I say more traditional. Um, so there is this this idea that I, there's a discomfort almost in Chinese medicine training where people are sat there listening to these ideas of everything being very rote and very materialistic. And what I'm saying is actually, you don't really need to change your education. It doesn't matter what your theoretical concept is. The skill of contacting something internal on the level of actual qi with regards to acupuncture is your needle control. It's your craft. It's your craft. So my advice would be one, throw out the uh, guide tubes. Secondly, hold that needle and hold it for hours, you know, hours and hours. I used to have a massage bed in front of me because I couldn't keep perforating my friends. Also, I was very young when I started learning acupuncture um, and, you know, not many people <laughs> willing to trust me. So I would simply place my hand holding the needle onto the bed and I would just needle that bed over and over again, perforating it, hole after hole after hole, inserting needle after needle, blunting whole packets of needles so that the very fine tiny little muscles that you probably don't even know exist the little connections inside your hand get finer and finer and finer till that needle can be inserted so smoothly so smoothly that there's no deviation on the direction of the needle as it goes into the body so that as it goes in at such a perfect angle it just parts 
the flesh. It parts the sinew channel, going through it like Butcher Ding's knife without touching anything and reaching the primary channel. And through this kind of work, the more my listening is here, the more I'm paying attention to that process, the more my mind is involved in these ever such minicule insertions of the needle that I'm repeating thousands and thousands of times, the more my chi, my chi starts to fill that needle, like my awareness, my energy starts to connect with it. So that then inserting the needle doesn't simply become, I'm putting needle in a point, it becomes, I am putting something in to cause an interface between my and my patient's body into that primary channel so that now we have a two-way and that the therapist effect is massive and a much stronger impact upon my treatment. So uh, that's <laughs> just my advice, uh, but you know, something to play with. The craft of the acupuncture needle treated as that a skill of gong fu that needs developing over time. So, uh, yeah, that's me, Damon Mitchell. That's my advice. These days, I'm around the world doing different things. And if you look me up online, uh, you can find me if you're interested in my ideas. Thank you. Nigel Dawes, welcome to Geological. Hi, Mike. Thank you very much. Delighted to have you back. We spoke, I can't quite remember. I should remember. It's my damn podcast. I should know these things. I think it was roughly a year ago because we're in the very, very middle of COVID and you were treating a lot of COVID and we were talking about that. Now we're, I don't know if you could say the end of COVID or at the tail of COVID or at the, we're emerging from, there's all kinds of ways to say it. Some ways will get you in trouble too if you say it wrong. But, uh, or maybe it's just that it's, you know, endemic enough. We can uh, get on with things at any rate. Or we could just be stuck permanently in the Shaoyang. You know, it could be the revolving door forever. Who knows? Is that like Groundhog Day? <laughs> yes. These sneaky viruses, you know, they hide out. So they do. But no, no, seriously, we are coming. I mean, definitely there's progress, all sorts of dimensions progress in treatment, progress in people's awareness of safety measures and how to behave and things like that. And, I mean, people have gotten bored with it, with the limitations, that's for sure. And they're sometimes a bit cavalier. But generally speaking, I think my impression is that we have actually learned a lot from this whole process. And people are generally more well-behaved, I think. That may not be true in other parts of the country. I don't know. I'm just speaking for New York. but Yes. Well, New York is its own thing. So, yeah, we're going to talk about long COVID here and just, you know, where we are. And how would you say... In the place where you're living, COVID has taught us something about living with a virus. You were saying people are better behaved. What does that mean? Oh, well, actually, I have to qualify that because, of course, there have been remarkable exceptions where people seem to have almost, some people, maybe taken a delight in going the other way and being deliberately sort of difficult about when asked to perhaps wear a mask or do this or don't do that, do the opposite, you know. So, But I think that's the minority Generally, I think people have gotten used to wearing masks. That's number one. It's, so it's more behavioral stuff I'm talking about. They've gotten used to wearing masks. I notice, um, you know, my patients, for example, probably 90% of them are still wearing masks when they come to the office. That may be because I still wear mine, actually, in the office at the moment. Generally, I wear mine in the office and on the subway. That's my kind of rule of thumb at the moment. So, yes, behavioral things like mask wearing, you know, close contact, being gracious enough if one tests positive or one knows someone who's you've been in contact that 
you know, you'll get a call from a friend and say, hey, you know, we were going to meet tonight, but actually this happened and, you know, I want to be respected. You know, so I think people are, by and large, have gotten into the habit of respecting the chain of infection, basically, potential for this and any virus or other foreign entities and had become more aware and a little bit more generous about looking beyond themselves, basically, and, and considering others and considering, you know. So, you know, I think a, two years ago, it might have been quite unusual, you know, someone thinking very specifically about their elderly parent and, oh, I'm not going to go around there because, you know, now that's sort of common parlance and people have it incorporated that in their, in their daily thinking. So, yeah, I think there's some lessons learned for sure about in public health, let's say, and public health awareness, which is, I think, important, very useful, actually. We're almost reaching where the, not to profile, but, you know, in Asia, as I'm sure you know, certainly in Japan where I live, you know, people, it's routine to wear a mask when one catches a cold or has a virus or, you know, as a protection to others. And that's just been the case for many, many years. So we're sort of approaching that kind of behavioral, maybe not quite as good, but. Well, I had the same thing when I lived in Taiwan. Even if people were not sick in the wintertime, they'd often wear a mask on the subway because, you know, you're packed in tight. There's a lot of dang people there in a small space. So they've got a lot of experience with you know, trying to keep themselves healthy. If people were sick and had a cold, they always wore a mask, right? It was like polite. It's like, I'm sick. I'm out in public. You know, it's cold, but I'm not stopping in my life for a dang cold. Right. Right. It's interesting, the... Uh the sort of mindset that goes with it, and it's very cultural, obviously. I, I certainly remember in Tokyo, you know, if you had a cold and you came to a public space, let's say it was work or, or class in my case, and others realized you had a cold, they would be upset that you had done that. And of course, in the West, it's very different. It's almost like, what do you mean you have a cold, you're not coming to work? What's wrong with you? You know, you're a wimp or something. There's a totally different focus. It's interesting. But I think that mindset certainly was challenged by this whole pandemic. And at the very least, there was a thought process that was engaged with by the majority of people. And even if they didn't change their behavior, they certainly were confronted with some new ideas about infectious disease and, and how to behave, you know, and, and some people did change their behavior and that, for the better, I think. Yes. Well, I would say majority of people, depending on where you live, you know, I mean, for sure, this is such an interesting experience that we've had with COVID because this virus comes in, this public health issue comes in and it, it kind of bifurcates along political lines very, very quickly. And so, you know, we're dealing with a virus. We're also dealing with like who we are as a nation, who we are as a people, how we get along or don't get along, you know, us good people there, those bad people there, blah, 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 the old us and them, you know, there's that as well. But yeah, overall, I would say, you know, even here in, in a place like Missouri, people are aware, hey, what we do and how we are with each other really makes a big impact. Yes. I'd be curious. I mean, I, I get the sense of what you're saying, and I totally acknowledge the, you know, the privilege of living in, I don't know if it's a privilege or not, but living in New York City where it's a little bit of a bubble uh, in regards to behavioral stuff, because the rest of the country might be behaving quite differently. And I do get that on the political level, obviously, there's been a, a huge amount of resistance to certain behavioral changes, and almost emphatically so and publicly so, and it's become such a political thing. I wonder, though, about some of those individuals who may you know, place 
what they would call individual freedom and choice above public safety, for example. I wonder though, privately in their own lives with their own family and perhaps their own elderly parents, how they actually behave. That would be interesting to know because yes, there's a lot of people been shouting about it and, and making a big thing of that, but I wonder how they behave with their own family. For example, if they had COVID, did they, how did they behave towards their elderly parents perhaps? And did they take precautions or not? And I wonder, I'm, I would be curious to know that. It's a great inquiry. We'll probably never know. We'll never know. <laughs> we'll probably never know. You know, unless unless we happen to have them as patients, you know, because we have all kinds of people that we see as, you know, that are very different from us in our clinics. I mean, I learn a lot about the world because I have people come in very, very different than me, you know? And my job is not to sit in judgment of them, even though I may strongly disagree with some of how they think about the world. My job is not to judge them. My job is to help them as best I can, you know, and in doing so, I have to listen to them. And so I get to learn something about who they are and how they think and what they do. And so, yeah, maybe you'll get someone like that in your clinic at some point. I've had a few. I've had a few. And the reason I bring that up is because of my, you know, not huge, but limited experience with diff people from different social backgrounds and political backgrounds. Because not everyone in New York is, you know, a diehard liberal by any means. We have Staten Island, don't forget. So, uh, yes, we, we have our share of interesting people that have different political beliefs. So I've certainly had patients, and I was curious because I can totally get behind and I understand, I think I understand, some of the political issues around, you know, if you've got, you know, centralized bureaucratic agency like the CDC, you know, pronouncing, you know, public health measures that everyone has to follow. You know, this smacks of centralized government and being told what to do. And, you know, I totally get that some people, that plays into the paranoia or the fear about that whole thing in some, you know, walks of life for some people. They don't like that. They're not voting for that. They hate Washington. They hate the whole, you know, and that fits into that. So on the public level, they're very likely to resist all that. But I've had a few patients who fell into those political, you know, categories. And when I've been talking to them on an individual level about their health, and some of them had COVID actually, and their families, they were very different in their behaviors. They were very conservative. They masked. They were very concerned about giving it to others. And, you know, so I found that pretty interesting. Yeah. The public face and then what we actually do. And of course, the, what we actually do is, you know, that's where the rubber hits the road. Right. Right, because they had, I mean, they saw what happened. They had friends who were very ill. They had possibly one or two friends who may have passed away. And, you know, that hits thumb beyond politics, I think. Yes, I think it does. Well, so here we are as, let's call it emerging from COVID. I, li I like that phrase, you know, merging into something new. And it's, it's getting to be springtime. So emergence, right? Life is coming out again. So there you go. You wouldn't think it's spring today, Michael, in New York City. It's minus 15 Fahrenheit this morning. Yes. Well, I've got news for you. Today is uh, officially, or maybe it's tomorrow, but we're like right at that cusp as we record this here in early February, the first day of spring in the, on the Chinese calendar. Yes. It's the Xinyan. It's the Chunjia, right? The spring festival. Dead flipping winter, right? It, well, it's interesting. It's one of the things I love about East Asian medicine there is a whole perspective and respect that's given to what's unseen. You can't see it yet. It's still in the dark. It's underground. There's something that's turning. It's moving. It's changing. And it's not available to your 
objective outer world senses yet. But like here, it's also really cold. I think it's like 20 degrees right now. And yet, and yet there are the beginnings of a little bit of green coming up. Yes, we've got buds too, yeah. Right? This is a fabulous thing about the medicine that we practice, that we have this perspective because of the you know philosophy behind it and, and noticing how we're within cycles. This all does come back to COVID, I promise. We are within cycles that there are things that are happening, but you're not quite aware of it, or you can only maybe be aware of it because you know there's a cycle, and even though you don't see it, you know it's coming. So we're in this phase now with COVID where... Look, I don't know what it was like for you this past fall, but for me in my practice, and again, I'm not saying I'm any kind of randomized study or reflective of reality in the United States in any way, but in my practice with the kind of people I saw, the folks who had COVID were not that sick and they recovered pretty quickly, by and large, okay? The folks that had whatever the latest common cold respiratory virus was this past fall, that damn thing lingered and it lingered in their head and there was like a phlegm that was really just tough to scrub out of the ears and the nose. So things are always moving, you know, and they're always changing. COVID's changing. One of the things that we're for sure seeing though is the long COVID effects which, you know, to us as East Asian medicine practitioners, it's not too surprising because we know that viral infections often will leave a sequela that goes on for a long time. It's kind of not news to us. I'm curious to, to know what you're seeing in your clinic these days in terms of the sequela and how you're treating it. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I'll come right to that. I just I was just reflecting on the first part of what you said, which is to agree with you, absolutely. That's exactly been my experience at the second half of last year, actually, or going into the fall and early winter of last year, which is to say that those patients that, or patients, friends or family that I was aware of that got COVID, including, by the way, myself, I actually only got COVID once. Uh, I didn't get it at all during the first two years. I was pretty careful and whatever. I got it in August last year. It was extremely mild. So I'll use myself as an example only because it was similar to many of the patients that I treat. It was a couple of days of unpleasantness. I had, I remember a splitting headache. Headache was a predominant thing that I had noticed quite a bit in this sort of short version and milder version of COVID. So people complained a lot of headaches. It was, um, in my language, very related to a sort of a dry pattern. I mean, it's a cold-induced pattern, but I, you know, there was some... I actually didn't have a fever, to be honest, and several others that I know did not have a fever at all, but certainly a nasty headache and a sort of a, a dry stuffiness in the head and maybe some sort of balance issues or, or those kinds of things. Not much phlegm in my case at all and nothing on the lung, no respiratory things at all, just sort of head stuff. Yeah, there was a couple of days. I took Gurgentang actually predominantly, uh, that kind of modification that for me was, was very effective and others too. So yeah, I just wanted to say I would agree entirely with your experience in terms of what I saw in the clinic and amongst friends with regard to actual COVID infection. You know, one has to assume that because most of those people had been vaccinated, that there was some, you know, some level of protection conferred by the vaccines, but of also one perhaps assumes that the virus itself is, well, we know it's mutating all the time, but that somehow or other it, I like to think of it this way. And I know that we know that viruses are not 
they're curious little things, aren't they? They're not living entities. Uh, they're very odd. But I always like to think of them in a way as living and sort of semi-intelligent because to my mind, it's like when they first strike, they don't have a sense of how bad it's going to be themselves. Because after all, they're, they're interested in the host, aren't they? And they're not interested in killing the host, as I assume. Although, I, again, I'm ascribing a lot of intelligence to them. I'm not sure that that's fair, but <laughs> they want to survive is the point. And so in the early days, it always seems that they get it wrong a bit and they, you know, kind of they're too harsh on the host. But maybe over time, the fact that these mutations seem to, you know, tone themselves down, maybe that's part of their evolution, their natural evolution. Who knows? I completely agree with you. I think that's exactly right when it comes to respiratory viruses. Yeah. Not bloodborne. Bloodborne viruses. They can just get worse. Well, or, or they just stay the same, right? Like AIDS, it stays the same. Ebola, basically the same. Hepatitis, basically the same, right? And think about this. I mean, this is where our East Asian medicine makes a lot of sense. Blood. Think about blood. Is blood mutable? Does it change? Not really, okay? Blood is like a really stable, new, it, it doesn't change much. What's the opposite of blood? In fact, when, when we have a lot of wind in the body, what's the problem? Well, there's not enough blood, and so you get wind. Right? So blood is the opposite of wind, very stable. Respiratory viruses are what? They're wind. They're wind and chi-based, yeah. So they, they're mutable and changeable. They're mutable and changeable. They change like crazy. And so I think this is why we see respiratory viruses change quickly. And I think you're right. It's not that they're intelligent, but it's like they understand how to work a biological ratchet. You know how ratchets work. You, like you move in a direction, you get some purchase, you get a change, and then you come back and you, you screw something down. So you can like move something in a certain direction. It wants to move in a certain direction. What do viruses want to do? They want to replicate. For whatever reason, they're not even alive, but they want to replicate. And they do. It's hard to replicate when you kill your host, right? We're facing this right now, like climate change, right? Like we want to replicate. Well, we don't want to kill our host. I think it is scientific. You think about any biological thing, it wants to continue doing what it does. Yes, well, I mean, even though, like, like we've said, you know, we're not thinking of viruses living entities, nonetheless, all material, you know, processes can evolve. They don't have to be living necessarily. And my mutation is a form of evolution, right? So that's, that's an adaptation, let's put it that way. They're adapting. They're adapting to their environment. And, you know, as luck would have it, over time, it seems that they do a slightly less harm. Yes, because they're smarter. They're like, like you were saying... Like COVID 1.0, like think about any software 1.0, like buggy, not great, crash your computer. But software 6.5. Much more nuanced, yes. And of course, designed to survive. So, I mean, which takes us to long COVID because, of course, that's sort of the segue in a way and into the possibility that in surviving, they do literally not leave the body. So there's a continued potential for activity. And it seems like, I mean, I'm always curious about this because each new kind of manifestation on the world stage, and we've had a few avian flu, we've had, you know, in the, in the last, let's say, 10 years, it's almost as if when it happens, it's spoken about as if, you know, there's no precedent. But in fact, there are lots of precedents and we don't have to go back that far. I mean, the, the one, the most blaring example to me and one which I had some experience with in London years ago is the Epstein-Barr virus and mono and uh, leading to what is now referred to as chronic fatigue syndrome or 
The British, of course, have a fancy name for it. Myalgic encephalomyelitis, M-E. Doesn't matter what, what you want to call it, but now 20 years already, well-recognized, long mono presentation, meaning that they've understood already, long before COVID, the COVID outbreak, that in this case, that particular virus liked to hang out. And in a certain percentage of patients who caught in the acute phase, they progressed into this kind of chronic phase, which whose symptoms, by the way, are remarkably similar to many of those of chronic COVID, remarkably similar, in fact. And over those 20 years, there have been some attempts at you know, looking at different treatment protocols. So what I started by saying is it always surprises me in a way when we're tackling new th phenomena that we don't look back in history and perhaps try to learn something because we reacted to this COVID. It was completely new. We didn't know anything about it. We didn't know anything. Long COVID, what's that? You know, in fact, we have examples in recent history of very similar processes. And uh, not surprisingly, at least to us, I'm sure, things like East Asian medicine treatment protocols were quite successful in many cases at the time. We were running a busy ME clinic in London in the 19, late 1980s with my teacher Gretchen and early uh, 1990s, where we saw literally hundreds, hundreds of patients, many of whom did really, really well with their uh, Yes, chronic fatigue, but also a lot of myalgic problems, myalgia and arthralgia and all these kind of inflammatory, you know, chronic inflammatory processes that we're now beginning and have been seeing with uh, chronic or long COVID, for example. So although maybe people hadn't put their mind to try and explain that, I think to me it's not particularly nuclear science to understand that there's some form of a trigger that allows for a reactivation of this kind of cascade of inflammation that is pretty systemic, which is why it'll appear pretty much anywhere in the body. So the muscle aches, the joint aches, certainly the headaches, uh, the fatigue, which is the challenged immune system, these are quite obvious ones. And then if they happen to activate inside the lung again, then you'll get some of the chronic respiratory uh, symptoms, which interestingly are not necessarily that common in long COVID I've seen. I've certainly seen people with chronic coughs no doubt. But I've also seen quite a lot of people who had upper respiratory symptoms, strong ones in the beginning, and then those faded and they were left either with gastrointestinal symptoms or cardiovascular symptoms, which are pretty much the three systems that I think uh, seem to be most commonly involved in long COVID anyway. And people seem to fall into different groups there. Yes. It, it's curious, the uh, cardiovascular, that blood stasis aspect of this virus, I think is something very unique to it. Yes, that's new. We didn't see that with uh, ME, with, uh, with chronic fatigue, with Epstein-Barr, we didn't see the, the cardiovascular ones at all. No, that's absolutely true. That's something different and uh, very curious. I don't know how, how you've been doing with, with some of those patients, but um, I found some great uses for some of our moistening, blood moistening invigoration formulas like Jurgansautang, for example, I've used quite consistently. Jurgansautang, that, Nigel, I hadn't thought about that, but I hear you say it and I'm thinking, oh my God, I should look for that in my clinic. That makes a lot of sense. Tell us more about that. You know, once you've established this is a, a COVID case and they're entering this long phase and let's say they present with no respiratory signs anymore. Let's say they're not really having any low-grade fevers or any febrile signs of any kind. If you want to label something, oh, this is some cardiac involvement, it's tricky because it's not like 
hopefully, they're not having actual, you know, cardiac events. Otherwise, they probably, beyond your help anyway, they might be in the hospital. And some of those people, as you know, sadly, you know, pass pretty quickly with clots and so on. But at a lesser, less severe level, what will be happening is, in our language, there'll be evidence of blood static signs. So those are the first things to look for. And I, and I would be looking at the extremities. So I look at the feet straight away, furthest from the heart, and I'm looking for little bluish or purpley patches or, or discolorations, We're indicative of blood stasis, but the underlying issue is blood deficiency, as in blood dryness. So there's a kind of, in my mind, I'm thinking, if I was inside their vessels, the blood would be sort of thick and dry. And of course, the, the propensity or the danger is there's clot, clot formation. But in the meantime, there's circulation problems. So yes, they've got cold extremities, but you might expect in some blood deficient patterns to see pallor or paleness. But in fact, in the Dragansatang pattern, the extremities will tend to be darker. In fact, the tongue itself will be a little darker, more purpley. So you see the stagnancy, but you also see the dryness. So the tongue will be dry. The skin will be very dry. And they indeed may have that classic Dragansatang pulse. Don't always expect it to be there, but if they've got that slightly irregular or knotty or rough, or not smooth pulse, that's a significant sign. And of course, in the abnormal diagnosis, which is for me key in locating blood stasis, they'll tend to have pain on pressure around the navel, around kidney 16 area and just below the navel, which is a little bit of a different location to the standard campo major Oketsu finding, which is typically somewhere between the navel and the ASIS, so like around stomach 27 area. So these, what I would call deficient blood static patterns, tend to manifest blood stasis around the navel, very close to the navel, which I haven't studied with uh, Matsumoto Kiko at all, but I, I understand that she may have a, I've, I've had a lot of students or known a lot of her students. She has, I think, a blood static point located on the left side of the navel, somewhere around kidney 16. So that would seem to correspond to that kind of idea. Anyway, blood static, in addition to blood dryness, clinical evidence is what alerts me to the use of that formula. And I hate to use the term, but it's almost like, to my mind, almost like a blood thinner, actually. Not in the sense of a Coumadin or something like that, which is basically rat poison, as we know. <laughs> well, it's not poison, but it kills rats because it causes them to bleed, poor things. But um, yeah, not that dramatic, but it's certainly anticoagulant is what, kind of the idea. Yes, and it moistens, and so it'll get more slippery, it gets more fluidic. Yes, I think that's the key because, I mean, perhaps I'm thinking about it over simplistically, but in my mind, if you've had an acute phase of a cascade of inflammation in the entire system of the body, and then that moves into a chronic phase where you have repeated little, you know, inflammatory moments, then inflammation is heat after all. And if it's in the bloodstream, then the blood is affected by that. And it, it dries a little bit, gets a little bit thicker and drier. So it would seem to me that it's very critical to not just move the blood, but actually to get in and moisten the blood directly. And that's, of course, in my mind, that's where herbs come in. I mean, the movement side can be taken care of with acupuncture very effectively. But the moistening side, really, you really need some substances for that, I think. So the combination is excellent. So yes, I've had a few patients who've done... It's always difficult in evaluation because the unspoken is you're hoping that they're not going to have a heart attack. But of course, you're not saying that. When I say evaluation, 
you know, they're not necessarily having a lot of cardiac symptoms, but what they might consider small signs to you would be important. So those chilly feet, the discoloration, the purple colors of the extremities, the very dry skin, the occasional irregular heartbeats, if they do get them, the purplish dry tongue, those are all signs that you'll be looking to see change. Yes, exactly. Well, here's the other thing, Nigel. These are signs that we know to look for. So to us, it's fairly apparent. We were talking earlier about the turn of the season in the Chinese calendar and how so often with our East Asian way of thinking, there's this, not just a sense, but a capacity to see things before they actually manifest, right? Spring festival, it's flipping cold outside. What do you mean spring? Well, because we know something about cycles. And in the same way, all the things that you just described, I mean, a regular conventional doctor would probably not notice it. I mean, maybe somewhat, but most people wouldn't notice it. To us, these things are notable. Other people are like, yeah, okay, their feet are cold. Well, you know, it's winter, put on some socks or some little blood vessels that are showing up as purple. Maybe they weren't there before. Eh, you know, they're getting older. These things happen. You know, it's easy to overlook some things that, you know, for us, they're not having a cardiac event now. Maybe they will in 10 years. Maybe we can just like sweep some of that out of the way so they don't have a cardiac event in 10 years. We will never know. You can't know that stuff. But I, I think this is one of the really amazing things about the kind of medicine that we practice, that we can see some things and take action. The great thing about things like long COVID or Listen to this. The great thing about things like long COVID, people have it. We've got a lot of methods that have been handed down to us over centuries that have been helpful to people over centuries. Now, I'm not saying our medicine's great because it's been around a long time. That's just marketing. You know, the trick for us is we have to be able to take that and use it in our modern moment, in our present moment, in our clinic with our patients right? It has to come alive for us. We have to not just read it and go, hey, it's cool that it works. We have to know how to use the damn stuff. And I mean, I feel like our medicine is very helpful for these sequela to viral infections. Like you were saying, in, in London, you used to have a clinic, you saw hundreds of people for something that in the beginning, Western medicine said, yeah, that's a psychological thing. It, it's not real. So there are these, these chronic conditions, and they show up. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And it's understood, isn't it? That, I mean, it's understood in allopathic medicine, too, that these chronic conditions obviously are going to take time to respond to any kind of intervention or treatment. Or, you know, and that is a conundrum for allopathic medicine in itself because most of their treatment protocols are designed for the acute stages. That's just the way it is. So interestingly, and I, I find this fascinating, I mean, if you think about cardiology in Western terms, allopathic terms, they've known for decades about the risks involved with anything, whatever process it might have got you there, but anything that thickens the blood. And they've understood the risks for that. And that's why they used to say, take an aspirin every day. Or nowadays, it's like there are quite a lot of cardiologists who genuinely believe, and I think they're probably not wrong in their thinking, that, you know, patients would do well just to take statins all the time because you want to keep the blood, you know, or anticoagulants. 
The problem with that is these drugs, you know, have side effects. And they, you know, you're asking someone to take something with a, maybe a, a very sound theoretical basis to it, but you're asking them to take something for long periods of time that are going to give them side effects. And that's where our, our medicines come in because there's so much safer and they're so much more able to be taken over very long periods of time. Of course, you monitor, and there are always the potential for adverse responses, as we know, but you're careful to monitor that. But the potential for serious side effects is so much less. And I get that discussion all the time because I can tell that in the patient's mind, because they're more used to the allopathic setting, they're like, well, they always come out and say, at some point they say, well, how long do I take this? Can I, is it okay to just take this, you know, like, you know, forever? Because it's a prize to them that you could be taking something for a long period. And of course, I'm always cautious to say, well, you know, I still need to evaluate you and stay in touch with you. No, you don't just take it forever. However, you could be on this for a while. Yes, we'll see. And it's safe. Yeah. You could be on it for a while. And what I like to tell people is, look, I'm looking to shift your physiology in such a way that you don't need this. That's an odd thing for most people to hear. Most people are like, well, you take a medicine to control something, like take a medicine to change something so you don't need the medicine. Like what kind of business model is that? Yes, to, <laughs> yes. I always tell that story to my students. Um, I'm not going to do the accent because nowadays it's not PC and probably my daughter would be horrified if I did a Japanese accent. But anyway. Yeah, but you could do a Japanese accent because you've been there. <laughs> so I had this one teacher. He was an acupuncturist, but also a herbalist. And, uh, you know, patients would, difference in Japan and maybe so in China, I'm sure too, between in the patient, one simple difference with patient sort of, you know, awareness and protocol is that they would often ask for the discipline that they wanted. That was like, our patients generally, they're not quite sure what, you know, you have to basically either instruct them or inform them. But anyway, he would always say, turn to the students and say to us, oh, you know, my patient would come in and say to me, how long should I come for acupuncture? And of course, I would reply immediately without hesitation, you come forever. That was his response for acupuncture. And then if they, if he said, well, I had another patient, how long do I take these herbs? Well, you take it till you're better and then you stop. <laughs> and that was his thing about, you know, his description of the different kind of protocol driven ideas about the herbal approach and the acupuncture approach. One is forever. And one is until you correct exactly as you say, you correct if you're accurate in your assessment, you correct the physiology and the person stops the herbs immediately because the show, the pattern will change anyway. So I agree with that. I mean, I totally agree with that. I always have the mindset that I'm giving you these herbs with the intention of getting you off these herbs. That's the mindset. My previous point was just that I think if you do have to, if that process takes a long time, at least, at the very least, you're much less prone to side effects and adverse responses from these substances than you are from some of the allopathic treatments. Hello everyone, Anne Cecil Sturman here. A working knowledge of the eight extraordinary channels from the unbroken oral tradition of acupuncture is valuable beyond words. The power of these channels is tremendous if the practitioner has well-integrated diagnostic, theoretical and practical skill. You'll be familiar with Dumai, the governor channel or the sea of yang, the primal reservoir of yang which ultimately finances all movement and growth. 
but this channel also governs the ability to self-determine. The psycho-emotional presentation of your patients can be matched to a classical activation of this channel, clearing impedance in the free flow of yang qi to body, mind and spirit. I'd like to share with you the marvelous potency of the Do channel in a full-length live treatment video from the seminar I taught last year in Melbourne, Australia. It's at ancecilsturman.com forward slash sinews2024. Click on the jump to free teaching button or see the link on my Instagram page at ancecilsturman. Thanks, Michael. Back to you. That is really interesting. How can you come for acupuncture? Forever. You know, I know that there's plenty of people in our profession. I don't know where you stand on this, but I know there's plenty of people in our profession. It's like, well, you should come in every month. It's like, you know, you should sign up for the rest of your damn life for acupuncture. You know, and I get it. It's regulatory. It's pleasant. You know, it's a nice experience. Some people want to do that. I've got some patients, they, they're just in for some, you know, maintenance, you know, fine instruments need to be retuned. There's that. But a lot of my patients, they're like, do I have to come forever? It's like, no, I want you to get well and like, just go get on with your dang life. Come get me when you need me. My door is always open, right? And I'll get to a place with people with acupuncture where the thing they came in for, it's handled. We're done with that. And I always have the conversation like, look, you're always welcome here. But the thing you came in with, that's not in your life anymore. Now, that's a very good point. And, you know, by saying, I think, or giving that example of the teacher that said, you come forever, I think the implication is that you could come forever in the sense that you could always work on something else. There's always something else to work on. So I totally agree with you. I mean, there, there should be a, a beginning, middle, and end to a process, any given process of health, hopefully, if you're doing your job. And yes, things correct. But then there may be something else. I mean, I... I do find this with acupuncture quite a lot because to me, I spend a lot longer, obviously, with a patient during acupuncture. There's a whole hour. So I develop a little bit more intimacy and connection with patients more quickly with acupuncture than I do with herbs, where there's a shorter time period spent with a patient. And so I often find in the acupuncture process that in dealing with, let's say, let's take some very facile example, like a, like an orthoped a fairly straightforward orthopedic case where you know, maybe four or five, six sessions later, they really improved a lot and they're happy and their shoulders doing much better. There's increased mobility. There's no pain is relieved and boom, she's happy. At that point, they could be gone. But in that six weeks, if you've in the interaction sort of noticed a few other things, you know, that would be the point at which I would at least bring some options up to that person and say, well, you know, it seems like we've done quite well with this. There are a few other things that if you want to, we could address. Like, how about this, for example? So I do find that process is almost endless in a way. Well, it can be. And I don't want to be like selling acupuncture and put my patients on a hook. So, yes, I have the same kind of thing. And if they want to work on it, if I sense they want to work on it or they say they want to work on it, it's like, okay, great, we can. I'd like to make that a notable moment of conversation. Because I want them making a choice about their health care. And they, and they might not want to work on it. It's like, yeah, it's fine. I don't care, whatever. It's like, okay. Because, yes, you could do it forever. I always like to let the patients drive it as much as I can. Yeah, no, I'm with you. I'm with you. And patients are interesting like that. I mean, uh, what their choices about what they want to work on. I'm reminded of a 
patient who came, his primary complaint was insomnia. And he was a pretty young man, probably early 30s. And this is a few years back now. Very red-faced and sort of, yes, ruddy complexion and quite a dynamic personality. And on examination, he had a lot of blood stasis uh, evidence. And indeed, he was very constipated, which he hadn't offered information about, but we discovered went two or three, four days sometimes without bowel movement. And he was basically hot, a lot of heat in his body. Anyway, he'd come in for this insomnia and we started treatment with acupuncture and they gave him some herbs. I think I started, I seem to remember, San Huang Xiaxintang actually to begin with, but then we moved quite quickly to Da Huang Mudan Pitang, I believe, because he had a lot of blood stake things. Anyway, he did rather well with the insomnia quite quickly. In less than a month, he was sleeping a lot better. Anyway, my point about the story is that what I haven't told you is that on the first exam, when he disrobed, he had the worst case of psoriasis I've ever seen in my entire life. I mean, his entire body virtually was covered in psoriasis. He hadn't mentioned this at all. And so I, having not mentioned it and having been so obvious and, of course, fairly immediately related in my mind to the heat pattern that he was presenting with, you know, I decided to stay quiet about it too for now because, you know, I was sort of following his, this is all in deference to what you're talking about, you know, patients will tell you what they want to work on. And uh, if they don't tell you, maybe, maybe you shouldn't ask or whatever. So, but at the end of that month, when he was sleeping a lot better, of course, I did say, and you know, we could probably help with the skin stuff. And if you want to stay, it's going to take a little bit longer, but I think we can help with that. So he was good and he, he wanted to do that. And I had that guy on Baihutang for almost a year. I mean, literally, it got to the point where every week or every other week when I saw him, I would, you know, I was very nervous to check, you know, for all the adverse effects of potential adverse effects of biotech. No, he's fine. And gradually and gradually and systematically, his psoriasis improved, I would say, 70%. It was extraordinary. But it took a year. And during that year, and this was probably my failing, I, it just in terms of the psycho-emotional side or the personal side, I had not done enough probing to find out, as one of my students did later on, because he was curious, he was like, Nigel, you know, this, where's this heat coming from? Like, what's going on? Like, this guy's like, he's improving, but it's, uh, he's doing something. And I, I was thinking, well, you know, you're right. Yeah, this is, we should ask. So I got the student to ask. This is my, like I say, my, my failing. And he, this guy is a Kundalini practitioner, it turns out. I didn't know this. And I, you know, know of Kundalini. I've never practiced it. I know the basic idea about it and this raising the yang up the spine and all this kind of stuff and but it turns out this guy was a pretty serious practitioner and had been for a number of years and all of a sudden there it was you know this this is actually where this heat is coming from and so in the beginning we sort of gently approached it and i got the student to interact with him and, and my suggestion was get the guy to speak to his teacher about it that may be the first step you know say you know he's got this skin like you know, his acupuncturist thinks it may be related to, you know, heat rising in the body. Could that in any way be related to the meditation practice? And should he do something to kind of, you know, alter that? Okay, this is instructive too. This is great because I'm listening to you describe this guy. I bet his constipation got better too, didn't it? Oh, yeah, very quickly. The first month he was sleeping and his bowel movements were happy. Oh, he was happy, yeah. Yeah, because you've got this really hot, really dry yangming right? Yangming is just out of control. Here's a, a fantastic thing that we think about, open-close pivot, which 
I'm still wrapping my head around that. For some reason, it's a very simple idea that I'm just stupid about it. So I, I get like bits and pieces of understanding. You just illuminated something for me. So I want to thank you for that. The Yangming is supposed to close, right? And his Yangming is just like wide flipping open, right? Flaring fire up and up and up. It's supposed to close and cool and go back down. And his was failing to do that in this case, probably because of the meditative practice where he's taking everything up. I had a patient, she moved away some time ago, but she was really getting in at one point to this meditation where she's bringing all this energy up, right? We're bringing the energy up and I'm opening the top of my head and, you know, flowing with the universe, you know, blah, blah, blah. And she was having all this like heat and upward and insomnia. I mean, she, same kind of thing. Her meditation screwed up her Yang Ming's capacity to close and bring it back down. I suggested to her, well, instead of bringing everything up, like maybe just keep it kind of settled. It's like, no, no, no. My teacher says it has to go up. Yeah, my teacher says it has to go up. And, and also it's an esoteric practice. I mean, this guy was quite experienced and he was obviously doing quite a lot of internal, you know, psychic work, actually, that he wasn't sharing with us. I guess that's what he was doing, which is certainly interesting, but there are prices to pay. As we know, the yang will spend most of its life trying to depart if you don't give it something to hold on to. That's, yeah, you could say we're all off to heaven at some point. And, you know, during your waking life, you could maybe want to be in those places, but there will be some downsides to that physically. Yeah, well, it's, it's heaven and earth. And earth, yes. <laughs> you know, which is a mess, right? Earth, you know, I mean, the earth plane, we're always like, oh, earth, it's beautiful in nature. It's like, yeah, it, it's a muddy mess down here in the mud ball. You know, we forget that piece of earth. Yes. It's like the Bhagwan Shi Rajneesh, you know, in order to have all that, you know, he needed, you know, 98 Rolls Royces to keep him grounded there, uh, you know. <laughs> I know. I, I would be fine with two, and I'd sell one and buy a boat. <laughs> so you were talking about acupuncture. You do both. I'm curious to know what you're seeing with long COVID in terms of your acupuncture treatments. Is there some acupuncture that you have found useful in treating this uh, long COVID thing? That's a good question. I mean, I don't you know, in terms of acupuncture, you know, pattern language and so on, I don't think I've noticed any repeatedly obvious, oh, these long COVID people fit into such and such a pattern. I think it's pretty much all over the shop, to be honest with you, because the symptomology is very varied. You know, like I said before, I think if I was to narrow it down, most symptoms I see are either respiratory, GI, or circulatory. It seems to be that. But there's also a lot of psycho-emotional stuff and, and Shen things because it is hard to tease those out sometimes in terms of etiology because, listen, if you've been sick for a long time, you know, anyone's going to be a little depressed or, or anxious or whatever. So it might be a reactive thing or it might be an intrinsic to the actual process. I don't know sometimes, but it's, that's another component that's there. So I mostly, with the acupuncture, I do these sort of big tai kyoku kind of big, you know, systemic type of approaches to the nervous system, autoimmune nervous balancing treatments. I do kind of quote unquote immune type of stimulating treatments. The great, you know, Miriam Lee's great 10 tonifying group of points, things like that. They're, they're big points. They're nothing, you know, spectacularly uh, original about them. But 
I found those kinds of approaches very useful. And I, I reserve, I suppose, a little bit more the specific focus for that individual patient for the herbal treatment, actually. So I sort of have this kind of, for good and for bad, I have this sort of rather generalized approach in my acupuncture to the long COVID, trying to work with fatigue and immune response and getting their, their sort of psycho-emotional levels balanced a bit. And then I kind of target more specific things with the herbs. So I use that kind of a combination, I suppose you'd say. You were talking about the Chirgansaltang, which is brilliant. Thank you. I Again, I heard you say it, and I'm like, how did I overlook that? That's That makes a huge amount of sense. Are there other formulations, other show, other patterns that you tend to see presenting in your clinic on a fairly regular basis? Yes, I think there are. I mean, I was very helped in this by my experience with chronic fatigue and Epstein-Barr many years ago and learning under Gretchen at the time and really you know, experiencing a lot at that time. And I was anticipating, and I have seen this, the move to the yin stages in the Shanghainian language. So the move particularly to Tai or Xiaoyin, it doesn't always happen, but many of the patients who present with long COVID symptoms, they're cold. They have cold extremities. They often have bowel and urine changes. They are sluggish in their thinking and in their movements. So there's a kind of a slowing down of the metabolic yang, if you'd call it that. So I've if I'm able to determine Taiyin from Xiaoyin, then I'll appropriately choose formulas. Mostly they will be Fuzi formulas. So I'm looking at Fuzi Lijongwan, I'm looking at uh, Suni Tang and derivatives of either or sometimes combinations of both those stages. So some of those patients, and general Tang as well, I've used quite a bit. So I, in some patients, I'm targeting that kind of general metabolic kick. You know, I want to try to get the yang to start to move things and then see what happens after that. But then there are those people that do seem more, less fatigued actually, but more stuck in that Xiaoyang stage where they've sometimes got even a little bit obvious low-grade fever presentations, but they've definitely got GI things like gassiness or uh, poor appetite or varied appetite and also variable or erratic stools and things like that. And I got to say, Xiao Chaiyutang has been enormously helpful for a lot of those patients. I use that quite a bit. As soon as I get any evidence of even the slightest of wiriness on the pulse, even a slightest of constraint under the rib side in the abdominal pattern, and they're presenting with, even if it's mild, and I'm not necessarily looking for, so I'll use the language to the patient, low-grade fever. Do you have any low-grade fevers or little, you know, sh you know, and they may say no. But then I'll persist a little bit and ask, well, how about do you feel like your temperature regulation is, like do you feel like sometimes a little, you know. So I go quite a long way with the, the temperature questions because that's a key thing with Xiao Chaiyutang. You know, it assumes to me, if you're going to give that formula, that there is some, in Western terms, there is some kind of level of viral activity still going on. And of course, the coating on the tongue is rather important with Xiao Chaiyutang. So that's another indicator. So... What's the coating that you're looking for with the Shao Chai Hu Tang? Well, it's certainly more significant. If you know the patient and you know their regular tongue coat, it's going to be a little thicker. So it's not a hugely thick, greasy coating, no, but it's definitely a noticeable tongue fur. It could be white, it could be grayish. But if you had a stripped tongue or a glossy tongue or something with, I wouldn't give Shao Chai Tang in those cases, just on that single finding alone. Because there is some kind of constraint there. And uh, you'll inevitably get 
you know, some dampness that will manifest in that pattern, I think. So, yes, yeah, um, so I looked at the Xiaoyang. I've had some, you know, some stronger types that go into these long COVID states. They stay in the Taiyang, actually, and they can be in the Taiyang for quite a long time, uh, the strong ones. So I've had some interesting results with various Taiyang, particularly Guizhou-based formulas with those people. Like a Chaihu Guizhou Tang? Yes, like a Chai Guizhou Tang or, or Chai Guizhou Ganjiang Tang, for example, those two formulas. Yes, exactly. Yeah, interesting. Gosh, there's so many possibilities on there. I've also learned uh, some very interesting things uh, about my own biases. For example, in Campo, they're just the way it is. We use, compared to TCM uh, practitioners, we probably use a smaller variety in the uh, formulas. Somewhere, I stock around, somewhere around 100, I suppose, as opposed to the whatever it is, 350 they teach nowadays in TCM school. In any event, there are some certain formulas, particularly historically speaking, the more modern formulas. By modern, I mean two, 300 years from now. Those kinds of formulas that formulate in China are generally not used so commonly in Campo system. But I, I wanted to give one example of a formula that I, falls into that category for me. It's more of a TCM formula, which is Bai He Gu Jin Tang, lily bulb combination, which I was familiar with, and I think I fairly well understood its mechanism, but I don't really use it that much. And I have had a series recently of long COVID patients with chronic respiratory things, notably this really persistent, mostly dry cough, but there is some phlegm there, and they want to always get it up, and they can't get it up, and they get a little flushed or red in the face when they try to get it up, and they're basically a little hot, but they're basically dry. And for me in Campo, my go-to formula for that presentation would normally be Maimin Dongtang, which, which I have prescribed. And I've even tried in one case where she had a lot of coughing at night and some a nighttime agitation. I tried Juru Wendantang, which is an interesting formula for nighttime dry cough and phlegm. So that's, that was helpful too. But ultimately, in at least three cases of this kind of presentation, I ended up giving them by her Gujintang. And that was really remarkably effective for all of those three cases. So I learned quite a lot about that, not having used that formula very often. In recent years, the Sa'am acupuncture style has generated significant interest and a loyal and growing following. In the Sa'am approach, a precise diagnosis leads to a four-needle treatment to address the five element and six chi imbalances in the body. The four needles target the controlling and generating cycles. It's common using this method for the needle sensation to be stronger than in many other styles. Thus, the choice of needle becomes important. The Unico brand of needles lends itself to both strong and gentle techniques. These superior needles are made of uncoated Japanese surgical stainless steel and feature the best guide tube on the market with its unique beveled edge. Additionally, Unico needles have a tensile property that helps with freehanding needles into Jing well points and allows you to more easily feel the arrival of qi. Blue Poppy is the exclusive importer and distributor of Unico needles. Use the code QI2024 to save 10% off Unico needles at www.bluepoppy.com. You'll be glad you did. 
Yeah. This is the great thing about troubled times like this. Yes. You have to get inventive. You have to get inventive. Well, and how do you get inventive? Well, you have to pay attention. Start with paying attention. Like, what am I actually looking at here? And usually it's because there's some other things that we're used to using. It's not working so well. It's like, what am I missing? And so there you go with the Baikou uh, Gujintang. There, there's something else that I learned when I was in Taiwan, a formula I use a lot uh, because my teacher there used it because it worked wonders on me. And I found it's very helpful for a very similar thing that you just described, Nigel, that is Shinsusan. Are you familiar with that one? I don't know it very well at all. I know the name, yes. I would encourage you to take a look at it. It's a little bit moistening. It's a little bit dispersing, a little bit cooling. I don't know if it's a Wen Bing formula. It might be. I don't remember. But again, it was something that my teacher in Taiwan used regularly. Yes, there's also Mai Mindong Yinzu, which is an interesting formula that, that actually is a little bit similar to Bai He Gujintang because you get that, you know, if you take the Mai Mindong Tang base, then you've got some of those rich, uh, heavy herbs like Chu and Sheng Dihuang that are added. And so there's a lot more moistening going on, which is a little similar in that one. My Mendong Yinz is often used for um, diabetes, actually, like this uh, diabetic coughs, you know, dry diabetic coughs. But anyway, yes, no, it's a learning, it's a learning experience. I'm, I'm trying things out all the time. <laughs> That's our job. You know, for me, it is really the joy of doing this kind of work, I am constantly being challenged to evaluate, what am I really seeing? And am I paying attention? That's a piece that I love. And it's also the piece I hate because I can't just go into clinic and go on autopilot. Like, oh yeah, long COVID and they got this. Well, it must be that. It's like, well, maybe it's that. Maybe it's this formula. And you know, on a day when I'm a little lazy, that's exactly what I'll probably give them. And if it's not right, we'll find out the next time I see them. The formula of the day. Look, we all have days we're not as dialed in as others. That's inevitable, and I totally get that. But as you point out, I think the, the question is whether one just gets used to that and accepts it or whether, you know, you keep alert to it and then you notice, sadly, in retrospect, you think, oh, you know what? Today wasn't so great. I got to do better. Yes. Well, I, see, I, actually, I think that's a really good thing because one of the things that worries me. I mean, I've been there. I hear it a lot in our profession. I hear people say things like, well, you know, Chinese medicine doesn't treat that. Herbal medicine doesn't treat that. And my thought is, well, maybe it does, maybe it doesn't, but maybe it's just that I don't know how to treat it yet, right? And, and so we're back to that, okay, what is it? And how do I figure that out? Which is, again, one of the real bothersome things about our profession and also the greatest thing about our profession keeps us sharp. Yes, I totally agree. I mean, I, I think my answer to that is I always try to treat anything, literally anything, because I, I'm not of the belief that, first of all, I don't think we can know in advance that we can't help someone. So there's that double negative, you know. So if you don't know that you can or can't help someone, why not try? That's the first thing. The second thing is, mostly speaking, for the, for the most part, our, our treatment is relatively benign if managed properly. So there's another reason why not to try. It's relatively inexpensive. 
So all the real important factors as to why one would at least attempt something seem to be in place, as far as I'm concerned, as long as you responsibly, you know, evaluate the progress with the patient and, you know, obviously mutually agree that, you know, we've tried this, we've tried that, it's not helping. Let's see, you know, what's next. Let me see if I can refer you to, you know, that's that process. But yes, to sort of cajole our scope into certain areas because, oh, herbs are good for this or acupuncture is good. I think that's a very limited way of thinking, actually. And, um, you know, subspecial, modern subspecialties in, in allopathic medicine, have, that's the way they've gone. And, and we see the downside of that, which is, you know, when you go to see your GI doctor with, let's say, let's cut to the chase, anxiety-induced stomach disorder, they're going to do a colonoscopy first. And then they're going to say, well, there's nothing wrong with you. I'll send you to the psychiatrist. And um, so that's the, the limitation of those narrow, you know, scopes. So we don't want that. <laughs> now, that doesn't mean we can treat everything or we will always be obviously successful at treating everything, but we should try. We should try and be attentive and responsible. I mean, that's, you know, like a GP. GP should be able to, you know, take anybody into their practice and then figure out if they can help them and if not, refer them, right? That's sort of standard practice. I agree. And it's, uh, and it's not a bad way to go through the day, you know? It keeps you on your toes. I love it. I love it. I mean, the moment I lose that feeling of slight nervousness going into the clinic, my clinic day where, uh, just as you say, gosh, I've got to be, I've got to be 100% on and, and alert and I don't, I don't know what's going to happen. It's a bit kind of like edgy. It, it is edgy. If I lost that, I think it would just would not be interesting. Oh, I, thank you. I love that. There should be at least one moment in your day, in your clinic day, where you think to yourself, God, I just don't know anything. <laughs> at least one moment. <laughs> because otherwise there's something wrong. <laughs> well, I think that's a good place to put a pin in it. I always enjoy our conversations. Thank you for uh, joining me here for our little COVID fest. And it's my pleasure. Great to talk to you. Appreciate it, as always. There's a lot we can do with our medicine to treat the odd constellation of symptoms and troubles that come from long COVID. And especially as conventional medicine doesn't have that much to offer in this domain, we have an opportunity to help a lot of people. It helps that doctors over the centuries have left us clinic notes and descriptions of what they saw, and more importantly, how they thought about it. And it's an opportunity for us to take the challenges of the moment, learn from our clinical experience, and then share that with others. As the Chinese say, a crisis is actually an opportunity. Well, friends, this winds up our retrospective on COVID. Pandemics, thankfully, don't come by every day, but they do arise often enough that we need to be vigilant, but not over-vigilant. We need to be prepared, but not paranoid. And as social media and digital communications are now part of the world and our lives, we need to better understand how our instant communication technology, which is now an unavoidable part of our society, plays a role in response to troubles that we've seen like the coronavirus over the past few years. 
I suspect, as our East Asian medicine methods often advise, the trick is to harmonize and regulate. Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that. It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, that's it for today. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community. Mm -hmm.